You're listening to the Boise Community Church Podcast. We desire to be a people who are following Jesus authentically and missionally. For more information, please visit boisecommunitychurch.org. So feel free to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. The words will be on the screen as well, but I just think there's something really special about having your Bible and, and turning there and reading it. And underline, write notes, all the fun stuff. And I want to pray one more time as we get ready to, to dive into God's Word this morning. And I want to once again say thanks for being here. We're glad to have you. Um, it's always a blessing to, to be able to bring the Word of God to the people of God. And so, Father, we do. We lift up ourselves to you once again, Lord. We ask that you would speak and that you would instruct us and, and shape us to be more and more like you, Jesus. Because that really is the the desire of our heart at this church, is that we would be your people. And that we would be living what you described in the Sermon on the Mount as a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden, or or being the salt of the earth, bringing the the flavor of life really to the forefront, and people seeing that and, and desiring that. We thank you that you are a God that restores and does beautiful things in the lives of people. And so we just lift up ourselves to you, Lord. We pray that you would, you would meet with us. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be starting in verse 32 of Mark 10. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want to... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, let us, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the, the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they have been prepared. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. There's this great story from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor and a theologian, he was actually a spy during World War II. He was actually one of the people that was trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler 
to try to end the, the Nazi Reich reign. And he was from a very well-off intellectual German family. And so when the Nazis had gained their power, and they're slowly taking over you know, the majority of Europe, he moves to Poland. And he sets up this seminary there, which is basically like just this small hut where these pastors would come to be trained because true Orthodox Christian doctrine was had now become illegal and you had to present whatever the Nazi Reich had said was okay. And so he has a friend who comes to visit him in Poland where he had started this underground seminary and he begins to challenge Bonhoeffer and he's saying things where he's saying, hey, your seminary, it's just... It's kind of a waste of time, man. Like, it's too rigorous, and you need to lighten it up. It's, you're never going to get people to really do this. It's too intense, because they would have these very long days and very intense study. And I believe there was a lot of physical training as well, because of the, the day they lived in. Like, they trained them to, like, flee. And so Bonhoeffer doesn't say anything to this man at this point. He just goes, hey, I want to show you something. So he takes this man and there's this boat and he takes him in the boat and they cross this lake from where the, the little hut's at. And he goes up to this hill and he looks over the ridge and it's where the, the Hitler youth were being trained and they're going undergoing all these rigorous trainings and different things like that. And he looks at his friend and he points down at the Hitler youth and he says, this, if I'm going to fight against this, our training needs to be just as rigorous, if not more. What people saw in Bonhoeffer in the day, they, what he was doing seemed like a waste. It seemed like a waste of time. It didn't seem like it was actually doing anything good because he wasn't seen as great. They didn't understand what he was doing. Because honestly, he would have had a lot of power and influence back in Berlin with his family, and he was, had plenty of opportunities to go back and, and rise through that and just keep his mouth kind of quiet like so many did during that, that era. But instead, he chose to serve these pastors, preparing them and getting them ready to stand against the propaganda of the Nazis and to stand on the truths of the gospel and to let the gospel not be watered down or to be run by the state. He wasn't seen as great like he is today. He was seen as a fool, battling something that was way too big and way too powerful. But I believe the thing that we see in this story was we see a man that was following Jesus with everything he had in such a beautiful and inspirational way. And on our text, we see that something different is happening in this moment. In the Gospel of Luke, it actually describes this moment and it says that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And it, it gives, I think, a better picture of there's a shift going on in this moment. There's a reason that 
Like the whole story kind of changes at this moment. Jesus isn't just this itinerant preacher that is, you know, rabbi that's walking around and healing and teaching and doing these things anymore, kind of going from random place to random place. But instead, he's got a very focused goal in his mind and he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He begins to place himself on mission. And it became very clear to everyone around them. It wasn't a question of where are we going next or what are we doing? And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's essentially on his death march. He's walking with his disciples and he's heading towards Jerusalem where he knows he will be betrayed and murdered. And so we see his disciples in this moment where they're carrying this paradoxical peace in their in their emotional state, where they're both amazed at his courage as he knows what is before him, but he is dead set on where he's headed. But also they are terrified for what is about to come. And so they're they're amazed with the courage of Jesus and they're afraid of the fate that is awaiting them in Jerusalem. And Jesus begins to explain exactly what awaits them in Jerusalem. Where he says, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and I'm going to be sentenced to death by these people. And then that will be executed by the Gentiles, by the Romans, where they will mock me and flog me and strip me naked and kill me. But I'm going to rise on the third day. And those of us that have gone to church or we've read the scriptures, we know this is exactly how it plays out. Jesus is doing something really powerful in this moment. This is the third time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is letting them see very plainly, hey, this is what's coming. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he tell them this? What I believe, when I, in my own life, when I know my children are heading into something that may be challenging or difficult, I try my very best to give them as much detail as I can so that their little hearts and minds can be prepared for what's about to come. This is a way that I show my love for them and honestly part of how I protect them. I'm not just sending them out saying, you're just going to have to figure it out, man. But no, we, we, we coach our children, we help them, we want them to be able to be successful. Good leaders are those that don't just send people out, but they send people out with success and giving people proper expectations is a huge part of that. And so with my children, my goal is to have them have the correct expectations or know how to show up well in particular situations. And so the disciples had an idea of what was laid ahead of them. But I'm sure the reality of it was nowhere near what they expected. 
this man that they had chosen to follow and had seen him work wonderful miracles and things and listened to his teachings and had decided to leave everything to follow this man. He's going to be put to death in the most shameful way possible. This is more than just a moment where Jesus is telling them what is about to happen, though. He's inviting his followers to see that things are about to change in a big way. So it's in this moment, though, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come to Jesus privately. In other Gospels, it talks about how their mother actually comes and, and kind of helps out on this, too. you got to love the, the Jewish mom coming alongside and is like, hey, give my boys a seat at the table. Let's do this. Um, and they come, they come and they're ready to ask for favor or ask for a favor and not just any favor. They simply come up to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask, which is super strange to ask for a favor without telling the person what you actually need. Because when someone ever asks me for a favor, I always ask, well, what is it you're looking for? And that there's a variety of reasons for that, because I want to be true to my word. Maybe I can't help you because I don't have the skills to do those things. You can ask me all day long to help you repair your car. You really don't want me working on your car, because I'm not very handy. Um, or maybe it's something that I'm just really not interested in doing, and I don't want to commit to something that I, I truly don't want to get involved in. And Jesus does the same thing here. He's asking them. He says, what is it that you want? What are you after? Well, we want to sit on your right and your left in glory. We know that you're going to die. So can you promise us a place of honor? Because in Jesus' day, those that would sit on the right and left, what's going on here? It's a, it's a kingly moment where they're saying, hey, I want to be on your right and your left because I want to be like what I've seen with the Caesar and the kings where I'm highly revered and respected, that those would be the ones that were speaking in the king's ears. Those would be his advisors. There's, this is essentially a political power play by these two men. They wanted to be rulers. And that is what James and John are asking for from Jesus. And so Jesus clarifies, well, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I baptized with? And they're like, yeah, we can do whatever, man. They're like, we'll do it all just to be on your right and your left. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're going to drink that cup. And you're going to be baptized with that baptism. But the place of honor, that's not mine to give. That's been prepared by the Father. And I'm sure in James and John's minds, this cup and this baptism probably represented, in their minds, responsibility or accountability or some other, you know, integrity. It could have been one of these areas. But in reality, what is the cup that Jesus drinks? And what is the baptism that he's baptized with? It's suffering. They didn't realize that the way to greatness in the kingdom of God was not just because you asked for it. And I do give them credit for asking. I don't want to knock them too hard on that because Jesus said, come and ask, seek, and you will find. 
They didn't realize that the way of Jesus will lead to suffering. And James and John, I'm sure, were probably smiling to themselves as Jesus tells them, yeah, you're going to drink this cup and you're going to be baptized with this baptism. And I don't think Jesus was smiling in this moment. I think he knew what was ahead for these men. And they did suffer greatly. James was actually the first apostle that was martyred. So he was put to death for his faith in Acts chapter 12. And then John, according to to, church tradition, he never was actually martyred, but he was placed in a vat of boiling oil, which honestly, if that was an experience that you went through, you'd probably want to die at that point. And so the other disciples hear and they're frustrated with James and John because it feels like they're missing out on something. It feels like these two are trying to assert themselves out of just being part of the team and trying to put themselves into a greater role. And before long, I'm sure they began to argue with each other the way that they normally do. And just like what normally happens, Jesus calls them together to kind of set the record straight. And so we, so we have a clear view of what is going on in this moment. If you just imagine it in your mind's eye, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be misunderstood, to be murdered. And his disciples are arguing about who gets the best seats at the end. They're being selfish, like we all can be at times. They weren't concerned about Jesus and his suffering. They weren't engaging with him of, and being with him in it. They were trying to capitalize on the moment. They saw this as their opportunity to become powerful, to become rulers, to become influential. But as we see Jesus' desire for us as his disciple or for his disciples and for us as his followers is different. Verse 42 he states, "You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them." And so it says the Gentiles. What he's talking about here is not just, hey, those that are non-Jews. What Jesus is actually saying here is he's saying, in all of the world, you know what it's like to have someone that's in authority over you. And I would say to you this morning that are sitting here, you know what it's like to have someone that's in authority over you. Because in the world, there are those that are leaders or they are rulers You know, in the language of what Jesus is saying, they do. They lord their authority over those that are under them. They show their authority. They show their dominance. And so I would ask you this morning, who is it that has authority over you in your life? Maybe it is a boss. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody you're sitting right next to and you don't want to look at them because that feels awkward. And I'm sure a name or a face is coming into your mind. But it's after this point that Jesus describes his different way. 
a way for us as his followers to live differently. And he says, not so with you. And that's kind of the, the piece that we want to grab. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave to all. So this idea of not so with you, it's in this moment that Jesus is calling us out of what we've experienced in our earthly world. One of the important questions I think a lot of us, when I reflect on my own life, is what makes me different from everybody else in the world that I, that I come into contact or in my neighborhood? What makes us different than the nice family that lives on our street that are not followers of Jesus? The husband works hard at his job, loves his wife, loves his kids. The wife is the same, loves her husband, loves her kids, works really hard. The person that's just going to school and doing the thing and working the job, and they're just genuinely good people. They're kind and, and just nice, good, moral people. What makes us different? I used to love to ask this question to my youth group kids. And they would talk about things like, well, we serve with a pure heart and we do these different things. They would give me all the great Christian answers and I'd be like, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that live in our world. There's a lot of people that do really bad things, absolutely. But I do think there are some people that are just genuinely really kind and loving people. The thing that makes us different is, are we followers of Jesus? Jesus is saying, not so with you because we don't follow the same path as the world. A world that tells us that we need to fight our way to the top to be truly great or to be truly worth something or fight to be on top because if you aren't, you won't ever be great. You need the money, you need the job, you need the, the accolades, you need the family or the whatever. You need all these things to be great in America. And we do, we can follow a political party, we can follow our career, we can follow our family. We can follow all these different things. Even if we're honest, they all become idols. They become false gods that never deliver the things that we truly need and the things that we truly want. Because we're not called to be followers of those things. We are called to be followers of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the call to servanthood. He is our example. Even though he is God in human flesh, he doesn't come to be served, but to serve and give himself to save others. In that story about Bonhoeffer bringing that back, Like I said, he wasn't seen as great in his day. He was seen as a fool. If you read through his biography, which is incredibly long, I didn't read it, I listened to it because I don't have the patience to read through a 500-page book. 
over and over, they, they go over these things about letters that were sent to him by good friends and good family members and people that genuinely cared for this man, telling him how he was wasting his life. When in reality, he was actually someone that did a tremendous job at preserving the gospel in one of the hardest times in recent history. He didn't follow the world's view of greatness because if he had, he would have continued to follow in with the Nazi Reich, pushing forward that agenda because that was the circles that was surrounding him. That was what the world he lived in. He wasn't an American. He was a German living in Berlin at the time when the Nazis took over. And he gave himself to a mission to preserving the gospel and bringing it to so many, and not just in a way where he himself was bringing it, but he was multiplying by training other leaders that they would bring the gospel out to their communities and persevere it. And in the end, he ultimately did. He gave his life for his mission, trying to assassinate one of the most evil men that we, you know, in recent history. And so just like Jesus and his disciples, and, or just like G his disciples followed Jesus as he, they marched towards Jerusalem, where Jesus' death and eventual resurrection was going to happen, we too are called to follow Jesus in that same way. As followers of Jesus, our call is not necessarily to the good life or the comfortable life or the peaceful life, but is, it is a call to a life of service. If you read the teachings of Jesus, it is very difficult for you to find where it, the, the goal for our lives is to have a really good 401k and just to retire and live on the beach and fish and do our thing. But following Jesus always has a cost. It may cost you a promotion. It may cost you friends. It may cost you family. And this is why Jesus, when he's walking the earth and he's talking to these people that are coming to him, and I believe intentionally and sincerely wanting to become his followers, he says, man, can you, can you leave these things and truly follow me? We talked about it last week with the rich man. Will you give up your riches and follow me? And the man walks away sad. Another man comes to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you, but my dad's dying. He's probably going to die in the next year, and I would just need to be there and kind of be there part of those arrangements. And Jesus says, you know, these super harsh words where he's like, let the dead bury their dead. Follow me. Well, I've got this thing going on. Follow me. I've got this thing up. Follow me. Following Jesus will always have a cost. And a story to kind of close us out with this example for us is, if you read the book of Acts, you'll notice, and really the scriptures as a whole, if you read the scriptures, one of the things that's really interesting is you don't find the word Christian in there very often. 
except for in a few places. And honestly, part of the reason for that was Christian was not a beloved term in that day. And it really kind of has lost its, you know, the sweetness of it even to this, to our day, but for a very different reason. In their day, it was used as a slang term. It was this, it was to describe those that were of the greatest disgrace in the Roman Empire. They would use this word to describe traitors because the Christians were known as they were unwilling to follow Caesar because to follow Caesar meant you had to acknowledge that he is God. And they would say, no, he is not God. He is a ruler, but he's not God. And they would swear their allegiance to Jesus instead, which is part of why you see such brutality erupting around the early church and so much persecution happening with them so early in the beginning of the church. But the power in these stories, as you watch men and women be you know, horribly treated and horribly murdered and all these different horrible experiences, the thing that they understood was they understood who they followed. They followed Jesus, and it wasn't Caesar. They were followers of Jesus, which is why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.16, he says, However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. They were willing to suffer knowing that this is the true greatness in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, as you, as we go and as we prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning, I want to ask us to reflect on that, to ask the question, man, who are we following? Who are we serving? Because if we are following Jesus, we will follow in his example and we will become more like him. Or are we following in a way just to make ourselves comfortable? We hope you enjoyed today's teaching from Boise Community Church. To find more resources and information about Boise Community Church, or to give to the mission of Boise Community Church, please visit us online at boisecommunitychurch.org. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, please rate and review it so more people can discover the hope and joy of Jesus' love.